Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Can you remember the first time you lied or the first time someone lied for you? This episode starts with a lie, an innocent little lie. My name is Lena and you spell it L-E-N-A, not L-I-N-A. My name is Hannah Truboff McCollum and I'm Lena's mom. Email is something where you can communicate. My mom had to tell the computer I was like 12. Did I really? <laughs> yeah. Did I have to lie about your age? I totally forgot about that. What do you think of mommy lying to get you an email account? Nice. <laughs> it's nice because you made up something just to do something for me. Mean people wouldn't do that, would they? Is it a big deal that Lena's mom, Hannah, lied to get her an email address? No, but it's a good place for us to start because it's a reminder that everyone, everyone has an email address these days. And in this case, email is connected to a little girl's understanding of dishonesty. It's a tiny corruption. On Codebreaker, we decipher our complicated feelings about technology by asking straightforward questions with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes a sense of dread. This season, we've got one question in mind, three little words. The answer isn't so simple. Um. Oh. Um. Evil? A little, maybe, yeah. Is it evil? We're asking this simple question about one kind of technology in every episode. Today, our topic is email. And before you tell me email can't possibly be evil, you should hear my friend Matt delve into his sent messages. That makes me feel bad about myself and everything. A woman named Adele talk about a moment that changed her life forever. An email address, that's all it was. And a professor describing email's psychological impact. It's like playing the Las Vegas slot machine. So, email. Is it evil? Also, there's a special code in every one of our episodes. So listen closely. First, what is email? It's a set of rules for computers, also called a protocol. So when we write something and say, go, bring this to my buddy Ted or Alice or codebreaker1971 at gmail.com, the computer knows what to do. Ray Tomlinson arguably sent the first email in 1971. He sent it over ARPANET, a group of research computer systems that eventually turned into the larger Internet. And the Internet really is all about communication which is why Jonathan Zittrain from Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society says part of what is amazing about email is that it's free to use. Email is the last great unowned technology. And by unowned, I mean there's no CEO of email. There's no number you call when your email doesn't work that's about email. It's just a shared hallucination that works and of course, the trend has been from unowned to owned. That If I were told now you can't have an email address, the biggest drawback would be I can't do password recovery for a number of services. But for communications, I could do Twitter direct messaging, Facebook messaging. There's all sorts of ways to communicate with people that don't need email anymore. And those are owned, not unowned. Um, they do have CEOs. In fairness, Microsoft, Google, Yahoo also have CEOs. And all of these companies have made email a key product. But the thing itself, the set of rules, free, unowned. 
Some might say that's part of the problem. It costs nothing, so it's almost too easy to send. So let's look at Yahoo Mail. It launched in 1997, and Senior VP of Communication Products Jeff Bonforte says it's still getting bigger. Mail is one of those systems that just keeps growing and growing and growing. And I think it's easy for us all to overlook how massive it is. How massive? Jeff says on a typical day, their system sees 30 billion messages and delivers a subset of those. But not all of those messages make it into your inbox. We have sort of multiple measures of deliverability, ones that we don't even let in the door. And then we have ones where the customers indicated that they don't want the message to be delivered. On a weekend, we might deliver two and a half billion messages on a weekday. We'll deliver somewhere between four and five billion messages. 30 billion messages try to get past Yahoo's filters on a Tuesday. Every single one Yahoo checks. Yep. Yep. Nope. That's a sliver of hundreds of billions of messages being sent daily around the world. And that's what's crazy to think about. Most email, total garbage. At any given time, on most mail systems, anywhere from 90 to 99% of the interactions on the system are some form of abuse. Spam of every shape and size. Some spam that wants to give you a new size. But there's still some good news for us. Companies like Yahoo have gotten really good at keeping spam out of our inboxes. They're sorting the garbage from the stuff that we actually want. You've got mail. Okay, the jury is still out on evil, but at the very least, email can be annoying. As Jeff told us, most of it is garbage. And sometimes that's our fault. So we get an email we didn't want, or we send it somewhere we didn't mean to. The right character in the wrong order. That's what happened to Adele Garrity in 2001. Right, April 4th, 2001. Adele was living in upstate New York. By Adele's own admission, her journey on this planet thus far had been hard. It was not an easy life. Had a lot of ups and downs. Uh, First marriage was not a good one. Had to raise six kids on my own, work three jobs simultaneously. Lots of things were not easy. And on that day in April, she made a mistake. Actually, somebody else made a mistake, and she repeated it. I'd begun writing a a newspaper column, a comedy satire column that covered about a tri-county area in the Hudson Valley. She read a piece in her local newspaper by another author that she liked, and there was an email address at the end. I followed up with a little blurb that was at the bottom of her column, which said that she produced a literary magazine and was looking for local writers to submit. So I followed the email address, which was author fifty four. That's author54 at AOL.com. And sent in a request to know what her submission guidelines were. The very next day, I I got a response. The response was rather strange, though. It said, Dear Adele, I'm not the party you're seeking. Divorce is the third email of this type I've received this week, and I have no clue if someone's using my email address illegally. It was a typo. Instead of author 54, it should have been author 45. Honest mistake. But now she was talking to this guy, Phil, and Phil wasn't going away. 
He was so impressed, or I should say grateful, that I'd sent him that email and explained things that that evening he instant messaged me. It kind of shook me because I, I really didn't talk to strangers online. I didn't go in chat rooms or anything like that. So when this little box popped up on the screen, I almost jumped off my seat. I said, who's this? So they started chatting over America Online's instant messenger service. We began to talk. And about 20 minutes into the chat, he suddenly said to me, well, you know, you're up awfully late, aren't you? And I thought, no. I looked at my watch and I said, typed back, no, it's only a quarter to eight. And then I thought a minute, there was silence, and I said, where are you? And he said, I'm in Sheffield. That's in England. I said, well, yes, I know. <laughs> and he said, well, where are you? And I said, upstate New York. He said, oh, my God, you're a Yank. The next day, there was a letter from him. My address at the time was Deep Ocean Fish 2. And there was this email for me the next day that said, hello, fishy. And I thought, oh, this is funny. And I read it. And he was very welcoming, wanted to chat again. And uh, I would say within a month, we were meeting every day. But did it feel different? It definitely felt different. At first, it felt very strange. But the strangeness wasn't what was happening to me, it was how could it be happening to me? Because people are used to being tactile. You see someone, you have a visual impression, and not just from a photo. But this was actually falling in love with someone from the inside out. There were no diversions. It was simply him and me and who we were inside. A totally accidental relationship between people who would never have met in real life. And for some weird reason... They kept talking every day. They started this whole intimate relationship almost exclusively on email. You know the next big move, right? There was only one brief moment of cold feet before I took the plane. He he wanted to meet me, but he was afraid. I was in a way too, but I was more afraid that he wouldn't like me after we got together. We both sat down, we, we went offline for a while, and c- cleared the air, got back on, talked it through and said, we both got cold feet, that's all it is. This is silly, we've known each other for a year now. The time is right to just put the last piece of the puzzle together. All right, but what do you tell your friends? We were hearing a lot of horror stories about people who met online. And I was reluctant to tell some of my friends about this because they thought, oh, horror, you know, no. I, when I did open up to my children and my, uh, my in-laws, my brother and his wife, I got reactions like, oh, my God, he could be an axe murderer or you're imagining this. It's an online relationship. It's not real. I was certain that I didn't really care if when I saw him, he resembled Quasimodo. I was already in love with him. Did he look like Quasimodo? Nah, (laughs) not at all. (laughs) He kind of tapped me on the shoulder when he first saw me and said, my God, you're real. (laughs) This was a really serendipitous digital moment that changed your life. It it did. It changed both our lives, really, in so many ways. And not just us, but our children and our children's children. But, but it's also, I mean, it could have never happened in the first place. It's two numbers. That's the difference in your life, is two numbers. It's a miracle. And when I think of it, 
an email address. That's all it was. It gave me my husband and my future. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. Codebreaker will be back in just a minute. Stay tuned. know if the email is evil. I, I, I like everything about email. I, I, I'm in touch all the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can misunderstand emails very easily. I wouldn't say it's evil. It's something we have to learn how to use it. <laughs> and if we use it well, I mean, it's super useful. It's useful to me. Yes. Because, look, I'm so distracted right now by my phone. I know, because it's a digital leash. You can never get away from it. Okay, Adele's story ended well, but this next one did not. Now I want to tell you a story about a relationship I was in. I was in this band with Matt Clark. Matt Clark and I met in seventh grade at Mystic Middle School. The first time we ever collaborated was when, for the eighth grade talent show, we performed that Monty Python parrot skit. Blue, I wish to register a complaint. Oh, yes, the Norwegian blue. What's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It's dead. That's what's wrong with it. <laughs> I don't think we got first prize. Definitely not. But we kept doing stuff together, playing together. Uh, megalomaniac, oh, uh, right. conversion party, and then okay. we can count the thing where we, pl- we did the high school talent show, too. Eventually, we formed the last band we were ever in together, and Matt was one of the singers. Okay, we weren't the next Beatles, but as a band, Conversion Party had a thing. We were working hard until it blew up in our faces. And that started over email. Partly because half the band lived in New York, the other half, including Matt, lived three hours away. The breakup was long. And the emails got really bad in the fall of 2010. The other day, I called Matt and asked him to dig up some of those old emails and said I would too. It was terrifying. I realized that going back through your old email, huge mistake. I wanted to delete everything. But first, I called up Matt to hash things out. The first email in the chain that I have comes from you. And it says, I'm getting sick to my stomach about the way we deal with each other lately. I literally could not sleep last night. We were once great friends, and now we're like married folk on the verge of divorce. This is Cancer Clark. Do you remember what that was about? Honestly, I don't. I think I got us like a really terrible gig. That's what I gleaned from my response to you, which is, Clarky, I need you to trust that I'm doing the best I can to get us somewhere, re-weekend shows in the city, and not complain about it. I love you, but I think we both know it's poison. It's so emotional. Yeah, it's like, it was crazy if you think about it, though, because, you know, we were really good friends, and we were sending each other these horrific, mean emails. Can you access your emotional state while writing those emails now? Do you want to uh, do you want to strangle me right now is what I'm asking. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, I have like uh, you know, my hair is standing on end because I'm like so embarrassed by rereading these, you know. 
Yeah. It, it's sort of the worst and the best form of communication for stuff like this. In a perfect world, email gives you time to cool off. But so, so, but, it, of, but it totally doesn't, right? Well, we end up crafting our hatred. You end up stewing on it. And then you end up with emails like these. I feel like we're ashamed about this. Yeah, I mean, I think we should be. In a way, it probably served as a little bit of a pressure release valve. Yeah. But at the same time, it's sort of exacerbated some of this stuff, too, I think. God, I found, I have a really blue one here that I don't know. I don't like. Let's hear it. On September 16th, 2010, I wrote, I'm done. Let me know when you've decided to put forth your compromise. I'm sick of all this horse, all the travesties. But you should go back and read your own about how you need, quote unquote, a lot more time and all the other nonsense reasons you've set forth here as to why we can't move forward on this. This isn't rocket science. Instead of around yesterday, we could have come up with a sequence, but instead you were too busy sending family guy clips and defending a sequence out of pride. That's tough. That's tough. That that makes me feel bad about myself and everything. I think, <laughs> I think you won that one i, know, I, I think you won uh, that one that was, it was probably a that was a pyrrhic victory though that was not uh yeah in a way for me the thing that i'm most ashamed of is how much time we spent having these email conversations like i remember spending like two hours and i just sat there working on these like really long emails i don't know that they mattered or, or that they helped Oh, I mean, well, they, they certainly didn't help, right? Um, I I'm, I want to say uh, I I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry too. Um, Matt Clark, my dear friend, still my dear friend. That's right. Um. Thank you for having this awkward conversation with me. Uh, it was my pleasure. I was mad on email, but Ian Paul was mad about email. And Ian Paul wasn't in a band. He's a doctor at the Penn State Hershey Children's Hospital. He decided that office email had gone beyond necessary evil and into straight-up evil territory. He was kind of pissed. Well, I was very frustrated about it as a busy pediatrician, getting lots of emails that are not related to my direct job responsibilities has been a source of frustration for many years. So last year, Dr. Paul did a kind of scientific study of cost, like how much it cost him to deal with annoying email. All right, hit me with the math. What are we talking about? It was on the order of millions of dollars. By his math, 30 seconds to read each email cost a million. 90 seconds cost three million. It was just an experiment, but it still haunts him. The volume, if you're getting 100 messages a day, it's... No. 
People have actually been trying to solve email overload with money for years. Bill Gates thought we'd eliminate unwanted messages by 2006 with the help of a kind of spam tax. The idea never caught on, but it's had many permutations. Dan Bobkoff joins me now. He's with our partner, Tech Insider. And Dan, you have a story about how one guy tried to cut down the number of emails he would get, and it actually had the opposite effect? Yes. So this story starts at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Okay. And the first thing you need to know, the school has about 800 students. Okay. And for whatever reason, the school thought it would be a good idea if it gave each student the ability to email the entire student body about anything. They call it BLAST. This sounds like actually a terrible idea. Well, for business school students, this can be useful. If you need to talk to someone in the Chilean avocado farming industry, you send an email to BLAST, within half an hour, someone will say, oh yeah, my my friend knows the exact person who you need to talk to. This is Amal Durai. He went to Stanford's business school from 2008 to 2010. The blast was in full force. Students used it to get all sorts of things done. Can I borrow a stick of butter and then five minutes later someone lends you the stick of butter and then you say, done? That's three school-wide emails right there clogging up their inboxes. I would say it's probably 50 emails a day. I've heard 10, 20 a day. Point is, it's a lot. So it's Amal's second year. Max Zuckerman was just starting his first. It was just getting used to all Blast has to offer. People would uh, abuse the reply all, if you know what I mean. Swapping t-shirt sizes, rides to the airport. And somebody else might say, oh, where are you going? I'm going to miss you. But then early in the year, Zuckerman got a different kind of Blast. Let me ask you this. What was your first reaction when you saw his email? My first reaction was it's pretty funny. The email was from Amal. What Amal Durai wrote might just be the most business schooly email ever sent. It starts like this. Friends, each email to GSB Student Blast reaches about 800 people. He writes the average annual salary coming out of business school is $97,000. Assuming that each email consumes five seconds of each recipient's time, each Blast email exacts a $54 cost to the community. If your email provides less than $54 of expected utility to you, please think twice before sending. And so he proposed a few solutions. A, making a charitable donation for each email you send. B, adding some useful, funny, or saucy content to the end of your email in the principle of carbon offsets. And so on. Then, something totally out of Amal's playbook. At the end, I added a joke. How does a pig go to the hospital in a ambulance? That right there, that joke, was his way of repaying the $54 his classmates were spending by reading his email. Dan, there's no way that email is worth 54 bucks. Come on. I'll let others uh, decide that. To his classmates, this was just a mall being a mall. But to the new students, this seemed like some kind of major policy change. They took it kind of seriously. And they took it upon themselves to... to institutionalize this as the blast tax. Amal Durai's little joke at the end? In a ambulance. Became the model. Soon, nearly all emails featured something to pay their tax for blasting the whole school and taking students' time. Jokes, gifts, cat videos, Wall Street Journal articles. The emails arguably became more valuable. But there are still tons of them. And now, they took up more time. It probably takes a hundred times as long because you're watching a three-minute YouTube video. So much for reducing email, I guess. Right, it kind of had the uh, opposite effect. 
And today, there's even a student sheriff who enforces the rules of BLAST. Um, there, there are multiple responsibilities. This is Hiral Shah. She's the lead sheriff this year. And that means, among other things, that if you don't include a BLAST tax, she'll be on your case. We kind of mark, um, have a down point against them, so that if it happens again for them like two or three times, um, you know, we will basically be like, hey, your access is revoked. It used to be, if you forgot your blast tax, the sheriff would give you a public shaming. But students say all this has a positive effect. Virginia Woolworth just graduated. So I think it definitely makes you stop for a second because you don't want to get the email back. Because if you get the email, if you don't include one, the sheriff will email you after and then you have to send a second blast with your blast tax so everyone knows you forgot. And maybe more importantly, just having to think of something that adds value to that email causes her to think twice about sending it at all. I would guess it cuts down on the number of perhaps silly emails that people would send out. When Amal hears about all this, about blast taxes and sheriffs, he's a little dumbfounded at how his silly note about how much money students are losing reading all this email became such a big deal. I'm surprised that it was taken seriously. I think I have a deadpan style of humor. And so I think people didn't realize that the $54 of expected utility was a complete joke. Uh, I mean, it, it's an accurate calculation, but it is, it is intended to be received as a complete joke. But it's also led him to think seriously about where exactly email fits into our lives. You know, to call someone now is considered rude, to just call them out of the blue and say, can you help me with this? Um, it's almost that you'd, you'd have to start with an email first. Email does add an item to someone else's to-do list. And I think that people, you know, people do like that fact about it. Dan Bobkoff of Tech Insider, the folks who are helping us make this podcast. Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, last piece of evidence. Let's go back to something, just for a second. Remember Lena? She loves sending email. Can I write Grandpa Jeff? (laughs) She sounds like she's feeling good. Real good. Turns out, That's pretty normal. Gloria Mark teaches informatics at the University of California, Irvine. Informatics is basically computer information systems. And Gloria Mark wanted to know how email was making us feel. So she's been studying this for years. I called her on the phone to get some of her findings, starting with how many times we check our email every day. Well, on average, people check about 77 times per day. Our high person ended up being 373. Whoa. The process of email, does it make us more productive? We ask people that. And so we ask them to rate their productivity. And these were questions like, how well did you manage your time? How efficient were you? And we find on a daily basis that the more email that people do, the lower is their assessed productivity. What about how it makes us feel? Does it make us feel good? Actually not. We find the more email that people did, the lower is their positive mood at the end of the day. This this sounds terrible. I should stop using email. (laughs) Well, you can't because email has benefits for people. Let me also say that we tried to unpack this idea of email 
and stress being related. Reading email is correlated with stress, but not the actual action of typing emails. You're reading something and you're seeing, okay, here's another task that I have to do. Your stress goes up. When you're actually taking care of that task, you're actually getting it out of the way. We, we don't see any relationship with stress. You have studied this and you found that in most of its forms, email increases stress, depletes productivity, and in some ways makes us unhappy. Is email evil? No, it's not evil. <laughs> it sounds Are like you we, sure? I, you know, email brings us so many benefits. It's a kind of tool that we complain about living with it, but we can't live without it. I would not say that email is evil. I just think that we have to rethink email and even redesign the way email is used. But, you know, we are seeing a kind of randomly reinforced behavior with email use. And what that means, it's like playing the Las Vegas slot machine. And sometimes you might win, but there's long periods of time when you don't win. But you just keep playing that slot machine because at some point you believe you are going to win. You're going to get that email from your long-lost lover or friend or that keynote invitation for, for a speech or something good is going to come into your inbox. And so we're just reinforced to keep checking. And randomly reinforced behavior is the hardest behavior to extinguish. It's the deepest ingrained pattern of behavior. So we have to think of ways that we can get people to break out of this this constant checking. It's time for us to archive this email episode, or delete it, or maybe forward it. To help us do one of those things, I wanted to talk to a man who I have seen write emails in the best of times and the worst of times, Marketplace reporter and co-host of our actuality podcast, Sabri Benashore. Hi, Sabri. Thanks for talking with me. Sure. So we've heard a lot of stories. We've heard people read terrible emails to each other, me and my friend Matt. We've heard... Horrific. We've heard... A very touching story from a woman who found her the love of her life through a mistaken email exchange. Yeah, amazing. People have studied the cost of this. We've listened to stories about that. Do you have like a, a feeling one way or the other? Yeah, I do. However, you are sort of like you're asking an alcoholic whether they think alcohol is evil while they're drunk. <laughs> so, <laughs> like. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to not check my email right now. I know. Um, I can see it in your face. Yeah. You know, email is not evil. We are evil. And email dismantles the barriers and the filters that we have erected to contain our evil selves. What you're missing is the instantaneous cues that you will get from other people, their expressions, as you say something and you might edit midstream. Uh-huh. That's not happening. Right. You also can send it out so fast that our filters are too slow for. Right. And we can lie to ourselves. We can just reread everything that we said in our minds over and over and over again, and we are so right. But if we are evil— 
Yes. And we <laughs> and we made email. Yeah. Does that not make email evil? No, because like uh, you know, Sauron could have invented a stapler in addition to the orcs. <laughs> And uh, I am a dork. Yeah, now we've we've gone into Lord of the Rings territory. Would you kill it? No, 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 no. You couldn't do that. No, no, no. Why not? Oh, I just need to check it. <laughs> so not evil. Not evil. Just challenging. Okay. So you're like, if we're going to go back to Lord of the Rings, you're keeping the ring. You're keeping the ring. You're like, listen, I know that this there's some badness here, but I'm going to hold on to it because it's very useful, and hope that it doesn't turn me into like a like a, a gnarled creature that only send, eats raw fish. Send email to Ben. Subject line: Precious. <laughs> Sabri is the co-host along with Tim Fernholtz of our Actuality podcast. Next week on Codebreaker. They just retitled the movie. It's like bearded hipster porn. By the way, if you want to access all of this season's episodes, you don't have to wait for them to come out. You do have to find the code in this episode, though. Want to get started? Well, you know the protocol, and I've given you a way to get in touch. I'll be waiting to hear from you. Once you get it, you can input your code at the website codebreaker.codes. Our show is produced by Claire Tennisketter, edited by Dave Shaw. Special thanks to Dan Bobkoff and Robbie Brown. Codebreaker is made in partnership with Tech Insider. You should go to techinsider.io. You can watch, listen, and read our stories there and more. Just don't believe what they say about us. It is intended to be received as a complete joke. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Codebreaker is a Marketplace production from APM.